<clears throat> Good morning, everyone. Um, we have a couple of readings today from Genesis and Jeremiah. If you need a Bible, there are some black ones up on the back bench. I think you all know how it works by now. Um, so first reading is Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Second reading is Genesis 2, 15 to 18. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Third reading is Jeremiah 29, 4-7. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray as we jump into this. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that you have given us work to do, uh, things for our hands to be useful in doing. Help us today, Father, to get a, an idea from your scriptures about what it means to be Christians who work and how what it means to be faithful in service to you and what it means to be people who worship you in all that we do. Father, we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Oh, good morning, everyone. Great to see you all. Um, we are in, as Chris said, in a kind of in-between series uh, series called uh, Rhythms of Life as we go through the, the mundane things sometimes, but the everyday things that we all have to take part of as human beings. And today we get to do work. Uh, the writer Annie Dillard famously said, how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. And what do we spend our days doing, most of us, by far the majority? We work. We go to work. We do the nine to five or whatever it is, the shift work or the, the weekends. Uh, these days it is really very different depending on who you are. But we all work. And uh, in fact, the average Western person will spend roughly 90,000 hours at work over their lifetime, 90,000 hours. It's incredible. In fact, the chances are that if you are in full-time uh, job, then you probably see your colleagues more than you do your friends and family. They're actually probably spending much more time with them than anyone else. Um, and so it's, it's amazing to me then that lots of Christians don't have a very clear idea of what it means to be a Christian who works, what it means to interact, uh, find interaction between your faith, what you believe about God and what you believe about yourself with the thing that you spend most of your life doing. 
And in particular, I think over the last few decades, there's arisen this idea that Christians really work for just one of three reasons, or all three reasons, uh, to earn money to provide for yourself and your family, uh, to earn money to give to the church, and... Uh, to have an opportunity to share your faith with your colleagues. And I've heard this actually preached from the front, that this is basically what it means to be a Christian in the workplace. But if that's what we believe, then I think we've missed out on an incredible, rich vein of Scripture that talks about what it means to be people who work. And in fact, if we have just those three, then we have a very deficient idea of what that means, of what work means. Work isn't just a means to an end, and it's not even just an end in itself, just something that's merely good. Uh, there's something much more to it going on. So today what I want to do is um, track us through the scriptural story and help us to reflect on what the Bible says work is. And we'll see that it's not just a little tangent or a footnote to the story, but it's actually a theme that winds its way from the first page to the very last and so uh, there's four kind of movements to this story that we're going to follow. Uh, we're going to look at the creation of work, uh, the frustration of work, the redemption of work, and the restoration of work. The creation, the frustration, the redemption, and the restoration. And as we go, we're actually going to hear some stories from uh, people in our community about how they uh, tackle their work. Um, which are, so stay tuned for that. So let's start with the creation of work. And the concept of work actually appears on the very first page of the Bible. In fact, the very first chapter is largely about work. Now it starts with God's work. God actually um, works the first working week in that first chapter of the Bible. He works six days, and on the seventh day, he has a weekend. He rests from his work. So the climax of that working week is on the sixth day that God makes, creates, humanity. We read about humanity in Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So to understand what it means to be called to work, we first have to understand what it means to be created in God's image. Okay, this is a super important uh, idea in Scripture. Uh, in the ancient world, um, rulers, kings, uh, as a way of ruling over a large territory, would put up statues of themselves in towns and cities that they were under their control. And as a way of saying, uh, even though I'm not here personally, I'm still in charge and don't you forget it. My statue is here so in a way, I am here as well. And the same idea actually is picked up in Genesis, that humans are created to be living statues in a way. That we're created to be representatives of the creator in the world. It's a representation of God's rule over the earth. And that's why in verse 28, God wastes no time in giving humans a job to do. God blessed them. 
and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so in this verse, and actually when we move into chapter 2 as well, we hear about Adam and Eve, we get a picture of what it means to live as God's images in the world. And God uh, commands uh, humans to, to live in certain ways, to do certain things. And the first one he says is to rule. I'm going to draw a creation down here. My handwriting will get increasingly worse as the sermon progresses. Uh, first one is rule. So when we think about ruling, we generally feel it as a negative term. It's about the abuse of power, about being domineering, subjugating. But in these first pages of the Bible, rule isn't a negative thing. It's a positive thing. It's actually the good rule of God. And we need rule in order to have order in order to have good boundaries and restrictions, to, to structure things well so that human beings can flourish. So, we're called human, so God's images are never called to uh, rule over the world as in an abusive way or to use power unjustly, but to rule as God rules. And God's rule always brings peace and harmony and, and justice and goodness. And second, then, uh, God says... Fill the earth. And don't worry, this will be up on the screen in a second if you can't see it well. God says, fill the earth. What does that mean? Well, uh, immediately, uh, probably our mind goes to the idea of procreation, multiplication. Get busy. Make babies. Fill the earth. But there's more to it, actually, than that. When we see in chapter 2, um, Eve is created to be a partner uh, for Adam. God says that she would be a helper. In other words, that it would, the task of ruling the world was going to take more than just one person. It was, they were going to need to be not just a partnership, but eventually a community, a society, a civilization. So filling the earth is more than just creating more humans, but forming a society with all the diverse wonder, wonderfulness of our humanity with different types of people doing different types of tasks. And then thirdly, uh, humanity was called to create. Create. Just recently I was talking to Sarah, actually, and I think I said something like, oh, I'm not very creative. And she immediately rebuked me. <laughs> and that was good. It was good to be rebuked because actually I am creative. In fact, we all are. Being made in the image of God means that we are made to be uh, kind of sub-creators. We are creators in miniature. We, each human being has the ability to take the raw material of the world, whether physical or even with words or in whatever manner, to take that material and reorganize it, shape it, form it, mold it into something that has not just function, but also meaning and beauty. And we all do it. Whether you are making a spaghetti bolognese or a symphony or a spreadsheet, you are actually engaging in the creative work that God has called you to do as his image. You are a re-creator. 
So this means that actually the way that God wanted the world to be was actually not just something which was functional and it worked well, but was beautiful and interesting, full of culture. And that's what would make a good world that flourishes. So, so given these, these three things, what, does, what is work? How do we define it? Well, I came up with a bit of a definition. I'm sure it will be lacking, but hopefully it will do. Work is any human activity of ruling, filling or creating that delivers the goodness of God to creation so that it thrives and flourishes. So you see the three parts there? It's a human activity of ruling, filling or creating that delivers the goodness of God to creation so that it thrives and flourishes. In other words, we in our work mediate God's goodness to this world. That's what we do. That's what we're called to do. And more than that, actually, that's not just, that's not just an end in itself, but as we do that, we, we do the thing that actually we are most uh, clearly and most basically called to do, and that is worship. When human beings do and live and be exactly what God has created them to be, that gives glory to God. That worships God. So when we work, we are, it's meant to be an act of worship. When we rule like he rules, when we create like he creates, when we reflect his peace and justice and harmony, we worship. We live lives as faithful images and it's right there that things went all wrong if genesis 1 and 2 is about creation then genesis 3 brings in conflict what the christians call the fall Uh, uh, so god gave adam and eve this amazing work environment You could be as fruitful as you like. Enjoy the work of your hands. Limitless opportunity to explore, expand, create, cultivate. But like any good boss, there were restrictions. There were rules to to follow. And Adam and Eve desired the one thing that was restricted. The fruit of one particular tree of knowledge of good and evil. They desired it, though it was forbidden, and they took it for themselves. And in that moment, they failed as God's images. Essentially, what they said was, we don't want to work for God. We don't want to um, mediate his goodness to creation. We want to be our own rulers. We want to be our own bosses. We are taking control. And we are going to decide from now on what is really good for us and good for this world. And in that moment, what happens was, Worship was redirected from humanity to creation through to God and it was redirected to humanity. Work became an act of selfishness, became an act of grasping, of wanting, of desiring. It became all about self-rule. And like what happens when a little rock is thrown very hard against a window, 
piece of glass, the cracks began to appear in the fabric of creation. Sin entered the world, and creation was fractured. And the relationship between God and humanity was fractured. And because of that, the relationship between humanity and creation was fractured. Not destroyed completely, but definitely fractured, corrupted, infested. And so in Genesis 3, we hear um, that a curse was introduced and the curse of work was introduced. 3.17, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. So without a deep and abiding relationship between humanity and the creator, work, along with every other aspect of life, became distorted and warped. It has become for us frustrating, unfulfilling, and difficult, something far less than what it was designed to be. The humanity's attitude towards work has shifted dramatically. It's become, or most people approach work one of three ways. Either they live to work, or they work to live, or they merely work to survive. Let's um, dig into those three a little bit more. First, many people live to work. In other words, work becomes an end in itself. It's where you find your personal fulfillment. Work might be where you find personal security, the, the thing that secures you in your life as a person and, and, you, and also for your family. It's, it's your place in the world is secured for your work. Or it might be where you find status. You, your significance comes from how high up the ladder you can climb or how quickly or how quick, more quickly than other people in your workplace. Or it might be where you, can, where you find acceptance, that you only really feel valued when others applaud your achievements or um, when you gain access to an elite crowd, the elite group of people who have made the same work um, uh, achievements that you have. Or it might be where you feel powerful. In other words, your self-worth is based on how you can exert power and influence over other people. Or it might be where you simply find your satisfaction. That you only feel truly alive when you're at work. When you're doing that thing that you love, that you train for. It's where you find your primary source of purpose and meaning. It's your all. Now you might relate very strongly to one of those. Most likely you relate to a number of them because we're complex beings and we have complex motivations. What's the problem with this? Well, it means that you place the full weight of your human significance on something that is so flimsy. I'll say that again. If you have these attitudes toward work, if you live to work, you are placing your human significance on something that is so flimsy. Because you can lose your job so easily. You can get made redundant. You can get fired. Or you might not... Um, get promoted as quickly as you would like, or you might not get the pay grade that you would really like. 
but you'll work so hard and hard and hard, you'll do more and more hours and you'll burn out because you can never really work hard enough. Your relationships with your family and your friends will suffer as you put work ahead of your loved ones. You'll experience insecurity and destability as you struggle to control your career progression. And you'll feel stressed and frazzled. You have no energy for anything other than work. And you may well find yourself in a job that you think is below you. So you'll feel frustrated. You'll flip from job to job, career to career, degree to degree, trying to find the thing that will make you happy and satisfied. It's a little bit like you might have heard the Greek myth of Sisyphus. Uh, He's the king who... Uh, angered the gods somehow. He probably, I don't know, stepped on a crack or something. It's very easy to anger gods in Greek mythology. And as a result, uh, he was doomed for eternity to push a massive boulder up a hill. And he'd push and push and push. And just before he'd get to the top, it would slip and it would roll back down the hill again. And down he would go and again and again, hundreds, thousands, millions of times. If you live to work, that's what work can be like. A never-ending frustration where you're just never quite there, never quite satisfied. But that's if you live to work. A lot of people, especially in Australia, work to live. It's kind of the opposite. Uh, What you do then is uh, you live for the weekend. Every Wednesday is hump day. Every Friday is TJF. Every morning is another packed train to the daily grind. I love that there's a cafe called The Daily Grind up over here near Newmarket Station. Work becomes a necessary evil, a gateway to the things that you really want to do. The international holidays, the ski trips to Perisher, the new car, the better suburb, the private school for your kids so they can get the best start in life, the best life for your family. The reality is pleasure, comfort and legacy cost money And work is the best way to get that. There's a downside to this, though, of course, apart from the stress of having to maintain a pay grade that will enable you to live in the inner city of Melbourne. Working to live is a surefire way to hate your job, most likely. Because you're so uh, fixated on the pleasures of life, the weekend, that work will just become a bit of a mundane necessity And you might find it really easy to begin to resent your job, resent your managers, even your co-workers. You may find that it actually kind of makes you a bit lazy as well. You only put in the least effort for the most reward because your life will only really seem fulfilling two days out of seven. Now, some people... Um, lots, of, lots of people will live like that, and it's a real problem. Uh, lots of, some people, though, I mean, forget this one sometimes, they don't necessarily live to work, neither do they work to live, they just work to survive. They work just to get by. And this is the reality for actually most people in the majority world and lots of people in our city. We take things like choice for granted, that we can choose our job, that we can uh, go after the thing that we think will be really satisfying. But for many, this isn't a reality. Work is just about survival, minimum wage or less. And in this way, work actually reveals the deep inequalities of our society. That we're not necessarily just agents 
of, a, of sin in an attitude towards work that will benefit us. But sometimes we're victims of it. Victims of a world where not everyone gets to flourish in work. Where society pushes lots of people into a situation where work is harsh and unfair and hopeless. And that's a, a horrible reality of the brokenness of our working world. Now, in all these attitudes, we can see glimpses of God's original design, can't we? This, the humanity as God's image, we're kind of like statues that have been graffitied, defaced. There's still a glimpse of the work of art that was there, that is still there, but it's been marred, it's been defaced. And as a result, when we work, it's not all bad. Work should be fulfilling. It should be enjoyable. And it should be rewarding. You should be able to enjoy the fruits of your labors. And it should also provide for us. It should take care of our needs. But sin has so distorted our sight that we think we can gain ultimate fulfillment and ultimate reward in work. But it's a trap. The writer of Ecclesiastes puts it very well. He says, What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving of which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. I love that last bit. Even at night, their minds do not rest. Does anyone relate to that? I think we all long for work to be something more than it is. We get glimpses of glory in our work. We want it to once again be something wonderful and fruitful and flourishing. So one of the ways we actually do that, we start up charities and social enterprises and NGOs to try and regain some of that glory of work. And that's a good thing. Melbourne's full of them, which is wonderful. But there is not a social enterprise on the planet that can fix the human heart. And that's where the source of our frustration lies. We need work to be redeemed from the inside out. We need that graffiti of sin to be scrubbed off the images of God so that we can once again shine forth the Creator and His rule, His filling, and His creating. And God is doing something with this. He's doing something to bring his image bearers back to their original calling. He's, he's doing something to transform work from being selfish and frustrating and corrupt into a vehicle of flourishing and worship. In the biblical story, this, these hints, hints of this start very early. With the, the people of Israel were, uh, were called to come under the law of God. And the law of God said a lot about work. One thing it said that humans, that the people of God, had to imitate God's working week. Take six days of work and then take a rest day where you won't work. So that you can rest, but not just rest, but realize that God is in control, that he is in charge and working even when you're not. And that God doesn't need you <laughs> to fix the world or work the world. He could do it by himself, but he enables you. He wants you to. He loves you too. And so you can rest. <laughs> Your mind doesn't have to always be going. You can rest. 
And then later on, um, the Israelites were given commandments that actually were so that their resources could be sustainable, so that fields and crops wouldn't be, um, wouldn't be so cultivated that it wouldn't last, that it wouldn't be sustainable for the long term. There are rhythms of good agricultural practice that were embedded in God's law. And then even later you see that God's law enabled um, the, uh, the marginalized, the poor, to actually be able to work and receive a just wage for it. So rich people who had fields were told to reap only to the edges, but then to leave a margin so that the, those who didn't have much, who didn't have regular income, could come and not get something for free, but actually reap there. So they could work and have a reward because all the fruits of the ground hadn't already been taken by the wealthy. So there's this wonderful hints of God's redemption of work. And then when we later, we get in the story that Israel is brought into exile, sent away into Babylon as, well, basically nothing much more than slaves in a foreign city under a foreign government. And you would think then that God would say, you know, just get by, do whatever is necessary to survive, get your people through it, make sure you are okay. But he asks more than that, actually. We heard the reading from Jeremiah that God actually says, yes, build houses, start families, start businesses, make money, build farms. But do it not just for your flourishing, but for the good of your city. He says, actually bless the city around you, even though in some ways they're your enemies. It's incredible. So there's all these little hints through the Old Testament but of course, they only become fully realized when we get to Jesus. Philip Jensen has this great quote. He says, If God came into the world, what would he be like? For the ancient Greeks, he might have been a philosopher king. The ancient Romans might have looked for a just and noble statesman. But how does the God of the Hebrews come into the world? As a carpenter. Isn't that great? Jesus, the, the creator born into his creation, had a real job. He apprenticed to his father Joseph. He worked six days a week. Our Savior had rough and calloused hands. And just as through Adam, the first image, sin came into the world, now through Jesus, the perfect image, redemption has come to the world. Jesus restores our relationship with our Creator. And then the people who are called to follow Jesus, to have a relationship with Him, to be brought into a new relationship with God, their work starts to be redeemed as well. And they begin to not just work for the good of themselves, but they begin to work once again to worship God. They live their lives as sacrifices for Him. And so our work as Christians begins to be changed and redeemed. We find a new dignity in our work. Because Jesus was born as a carpenter, it means that even the most mundane of jobs can have new dignity can be useful in God's plan, should not be despised or looked down upon. They are valuable, not just those jobs of power 
and privilege. Secondly, a new meaning can be found in work. Because if our ultimate security, status, acceptance, power, and satisfaction has already been granted to us in Jesus, then we don't have to find it in our work anymore. And so we can be set free to be satisfied and joyful in what we have, not constantly striving for something that we don't. It doesn't mean that Christians shouldn't you know, work for promotions and that sort of thing and, and, and rise for the ranks. Of course they will. But they will hold these things loosely. And they will not be crushed if their dreams are not met. Thirdly, a new purpose can be found in work. Because no longer will work just to be about how what we can get out of it, our reward. Not just about working for the weekend. But work finds a greater purpose in that it helps our world to flourish. We work for the good of our city. And it will produce a humility so that even a mundane job can be seen in light of service to others. And you'll begin to see your bosses and your co-workers as other images of God that deserve your respect and your honour because they have dignity too. And finally, a new worship can be found in work. Work will shift away from being something that glorifies yourself to something that glorifies God. Not just in your paid work. I've got to make this distinction clear here. I'm not just talking about the thing you're paid to do. Because actually a lot of people can't work, don't have jobs in terms of paid work. But I'm talking about anything you do. Anything you do to be creative, to fill, build culture, to rule. could be something as mundane as doing, fixing up your veggie patch in your back garden. You have done something, you've worked in a way which can bring glory to God, your creator. All endeavors will be redeemed sacrifices of worship to our God. So we've seen a, like a, a biblical framework for how work is redeemed. We're going to stop now. I'm going to come back because there's another chapter to come. We're going to stop and we're just going to briefly take a break and respond with a song. And then we're going to hear from a couple of people from our community, uh, Campbell and Jill, to just reflect a little bit on what work means for them specifically. Me to just share a little bit about um, how parenting is work uh, and how that kind of has worked out for, for us or how it's kind of working out, maybe I should say. Um, <laughs> um, I think uh, the first thing to say is it's kind of, it's a blessing to be a parent and, um, and it is clear, like when you look at those Genesis accounts that God has given us um, that parenting is part of our work. Um, often I think we kind of divide. We think, oh, I work during the week. I go out and go to work and earn money. And, you know, home is just home. But God gives us parenting uh, or gives all of us the responsibility of raising up the next generation. And um, some of us, for some of us, that means we're parents. And for others, it means supporting and caring for other kids in our community and raising them up to know God and to love him and to live as... Um, citizens in our world um so i think it, it's clear that parenting is work um in one sense it's or it's a work given by god but um i think for me in my experience one of the thing the big things about that is um how that kind of works out in practice and uh and how um 
I've made idols of both work and parenting as I've kind of considered how I'd be a parent. Um, so I think when I first had kids and, and over the time having kids, um, it's easy to make work or my, my professional work, I suppose, my, an idol. So whether that be by um, when I'm at home with the kids, just like covered in fluids and tired and grumpy and screaming children everywhere or whatever, um, just being like, oh, I just want to go to work. I just want to be able to have adult conversation and I want to be able to dress in proper clothes and be respected and um, and it would be so much easier if I just went to work and, um, uh, and sort of wishing I was there instead of in the moment that I'm in. Or otherwise also... Um, being out and about. So suddenly, once you have kids and you're at home and you're sort of out during the week, you kind of think about where your identity is wrapped up in. So people often, you know, it's the same thing for everyone, but what's the first thing that you say, ask someone, what do you do for work? And you say, oh, I do this or do that job. But um, it's easy to want to be like, oh, I want the recognition of that job. In my job, I knew where I fit. I knew what my role was and I could identify that and, and actually explain to people, you know, I'm a doctor and this is what I do and people kind of recognise that. But when you're a parent, it's just like, oh, I'm, I'm being a mum at the moment. Is that really like who I am? Do I want that to be my whole identity? Do I really, uh, you know, people respect me more when I talk about my work. So um, I think it's easy to make an idol, it's been easy for me to make an idol of my work and so wish I was there instead of being at home um, wishing or like... In, enjoying or making the most of the time uh, that I have um, with young kids. Um, but then on the conversely, like there are times, especially when I have been at work, that I wanting to, I just want to be at home, I just want to stay home with the kids and it's easy to make an idol of parenting. And um, so in that itself, it's been a flaw for me as well. So um, part of that comes through comparing myself with other people and wanting to, uh, seeing, you know, they seem to be managing so well or they seem to have a perfect house or have perfect children or their kids are dressed in this way or they only eat organic food or um, um, well, never eat sugar, never give their kids sugar, whatever. Um, and I think, oh, you know, I, I need to be like, make, make sure that I do this job of per parenting perfectly or I really should be staying home with my children and I think this is one of the almost dangers in, in some Christian circles is that like this sort of pressure, you should be at home with your children um, all the time and that's the only way that you can do perfect parenting. And while um, the way you parent and, and the way I, we choose to parent or um, divide time between my work and my home life is it's different for every family and um, and the choices we've made are specific to us, but it's easy to kind of wish that or think that you have to do it in a certain way. And I think that just to me is the thing for me that's been um, probably the uh, the fall of our, my parenting experiences, <laughs> that either I idolise work or I idolise parenting. And, um, and the reality, of course, is that God's... Um, God's given us um, jobs and given me different works at different times of my week and my life. Um, and one of those work at the moment is to raise children. And um, and actually, for me, it's actually more about that. That might be my work, but it's not who I am. And it's not all of who I am. So one of my roles is to be a mother, but 
it's not my primary identity. And if I kind of get all caught up in that, um, I have to be the perfect mother or do everything perfectly, or I have to be the perfect doctor, then actually that's not what God wants for me. God wants me to be um, his child first and wants me to be, um, uh, yeah, just have my identity wrapped up in him and, and serving him and living for his glory. And, um, and that kind of should work out in everything I do. That doesn't mean it's easy, but that's my, been my experience and that's kind of where I think parenting is important work and, um, and I think I really value this stage of life. Um, but there's no one way to do it. And also I think um, the key is that there's no perfect way because under God um, we just have to live for him first and, um, and live yeah, and, and parent accordingly. So that's my little reflections. I hope that's helpful. Yeah, thank you, Jill. Um, yeah, so most of you know that I am unwell and um, can't work full time. I've um, yeah got f uh, f yeah I've been unwell for eighteen years um, with um, MECFS, and so. Work, the idea of work, the topic is a little bit fraught for me. Um, but as I was thinking, I think it's not just for me. Um, everybody has limitations and everybody gets frustrated because they can't work as well as they would like or things don't work out in their work. Um, so I think in a, in a way, although I would say that my illness is not a good thing, in many ways God has taught me many things and blessed me through uh, my limitations. So I've, I've got um, yeah, three brief, I'll try and be brief, um, reflections on what God has taught me um, through my limited capacity to work. Um, and, and so first, just picking up on what Jill said about identity, um, that, yeah, I, I can't base who I am or my self-worth in my achievements because they're not what I thought they would be. I have not achieved many of the things, many of my dreams that I thought I w would do. I've not achieved what other people uh, can achieve. Um, they're not, again, uh, in who I associate with. They're not my colleagues. My identity doesn't come from um, the industry I'm in uh, or the... Um, uh, elite group that I am part of um, because I can't be uh, the, the occupations that I was the vocations that I was interested in I, you can't do part time um, but on the flip side also there's a danger that I get my identity from being an, an ill person from being unwell, from being limited um, and that's that's just as dangerous because that's no foundation um, to, be, to, to, to be who God calls us to be, to be someone who, um, who images him, who, who rules, who fills, who creates. So it's, it's really forced me to, to think deeply and receive from, from God, um, yeah, that the grace that my identity is in Christ, our, all of our identities is in Christ, no matter what we do, no matter what we can or can't do. 
Um, and and that's, been, that's been a blessing, um, being forced to realize that and being given the time to realize that. Um, so the, the second reflection is around purpose. Um, what is work for? If I work is not to provide for myself because I can't, um, what, what it's for? Um, and I think it, God's taught me that, um, that in, in one way, all life is work. What we do is work. No matter how much or what we can do, um, it is all work in a sense. But also, everybody needs to be part of something that is bigger than themselves. And um, no matter how much you can do, I think the, the people who struggle the most with not being able to do, not be able to have full-time work, are those who don't feel they're part of a, a group or that what they can do isn't for something larger than themselves. Um, so, so I thought about what is that, and and that is it's this stuff. It's I'm still um, in my limited capacity, um, part of the those creation mandates that I am. Um, yeah, I am here to, in my limited capacity, to rule, to bring order to my small sphere, to um, be part of a society, to be part of the people of God, um, and and to create on a, on whatever scale that is, whether that's just through what I read and reflecting on that, so sort of making something of the world. Um, whether that's through through the friendships I have, um, and that leads into my my final sort of reflection, um, is about interdependence. We nobody works alone. It's impossible to work alone. It, you just can't do it. Even if you're, I'm not. Sh even if you're cooking a meal, you are still using ingredients that other people have grown. You're still following a recipe that has been devised by people and refined, um, and you're cooking it maybe just for yourself, maybe for your family, for your friends, but you're also going to consume that meal and that will give you energy to, to work. Um, so it, it's impossible. So I think one of the great things about Genesis 1 is it's not God saying... To each of us, work. God is saying to all of us, work. We work together. Um, and so we, we are in our work, even in our work, we are interdependent. Um, we work as a community. And so that, that's where we sort of transcend our limitations, that we are all limited, but together we work um, and we enable each other to work. Um, and we also, work is about uh, providing goods for each other. We, we, so even in my, my illness has enabled and given opportunities for people to serve me, to include me. So, yeah, there's this, this idea that... Um, 
that work is, is something we all do. We do it together. And um, that, that without me in this community, work wouldn't, there wouldn't be the human flourishing in the work. Um, so, yeah, I, yeah, so if I finish with that um, encouragement to view um, your limitations not as something that mars your ability to work, but um, they're part of being human together and working together. And they're opportunities to actually say, hey, I need help. How can, can you help me? And together, can we work together to um, do this stuff? Thanks. Why don't we thank uh, uh, Julian Campbell for sharing so wonderfully. So we've seen that there has been this, Jesus planted this seed in society, which has grown to the point where across this world, uh, subvertly, <laughs> Uh, in the midst of culture, in the midst of communities, uh, people are regaining the dignity of being images of God and their work is being transformed, redeemed as a result. But God's plan isn't just to redeem the world in terms of uh, placing pr new principles and new power within society to change it, but he's, he's got a, a bigger plan, an ultimate plan to restore the world. And the work of restoration has begun with the resurrection of Jesus. That his rising from the dead ushers in this new age of redemption, yes, but also eventually restoration. That the new power of the Spirit coming in and mediated to this world for Christians will have an actual physical effect. And we see the hints of this already in the way that we live. Just as the Israelites were called to work for the good of Babylon, so Christians are called to work for the good of the city to work in ways which are ethical and just, that work for the flourishing of people around them, that avoid, not perfectly, but increasingly, the, the, the traps of seeing work as an idol or seeing work just as a means to an end. Jesus talked about a new kingdom being established. And the new kingdom of God is the rule of God that began right back in Genesis 1, being uh, mediated in a new way into the world through the church, the, the people of the kingdom. When we uh, don't allow work to rule our lives, but instead give our time and our treasures and our talents, even outside of work hours, for the good of our neighbourhoods, so they can feel the goodness of the gospel, that it's not just news, but good news. That's when we live out our identity as people of the kingdom. We have this ability, increasingly, to hold our careers and our pay grades and our promotions and the level of work that we do and the places that we do it loosely. In fact, many Christians will sacrifice all sorts of opportunities and advancements because they don't believe that it's ultimately going to be a good thing for the kingdom. It doesn't mean that you will necessarily. Promotions and advancements aren't bad. But sometimes people will give them up. 
And that's an incredible witness. It's so there's a counterculture that's being spearheaded by Christians that's uh, so radical that it's actually going against the, the theme of our culture, which is increasingly a fear of missing out. Have you heard that? FOMO? It's where basically people are, uh, because people believe that this life is it, that is nothing more, that means you have to wring every last bit of satisfaction and fulfillment out of the work that you're doing now because afterwards that's, not, that's it. It's done. There are no more opportunities if you believe this world is all there is. So when we die, as the writer of Ecclesiastes points out, our work just gets taken over by someone else and it's all meaningless in the end. But to be a follower of Jesus is to be set free from this thinking because God's promise for his work is that restoration will complete it one day. That Jesus will return to banish sin and death and brokenness. He will roll back the curse and he will make this world into something that's new. Like the garden that we started with, but even better. A garden with a city in the middle. What's a city mean? A city means culture, civilization, community, togetherness. That is the hope of Christians, not just a for this world to dissolve away and there's nothing left of it and we'll go and sit on clouds of harps singing daggy Christian songs for all of eternity, which I grew up believing, horribly, but a real, renewed, physical world. And you know what? A world that needs to be worked. The new earth is a place where we will have jobs to do to make it a wonderful place full of culture and innovation and beauty. Isaiah 65 gives us a picture of what this new earth will be like. Isaiah writes, They will build houses and dwell in them. They will build vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands they will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. The parallel passage to this is in Revelation 21, where uh, the writer of Revelation pictures the kings of the world, the rulers, bringing their treasures into God's new city. What are the treasures of kings? Well, it's the treasures of the culture that they have ruled over, isn't it? It's not just money and wealth, but it's art, music, economics, innovation, technology. All this, the fruits of the world are, bringing, are, bringing, are being brought into the new city for us to enjoy and to create with, to continue to work with. The good news is that among us, very few people, I think, will have to be retrained. <laughs> but definitely I will be. <laughs> Pastoring is like the, one of the very few things that won't possibly be needed in the new heavens and the new earth because we'll know God <laughs> perfectly. You won't need me to expound the scriptures for you anymore. You will know them from the inside out. So I have to go back and chef again, cook food, and I'm okay with that. But here's the point. As we toil away in a world that isn't yet restored and as we work hard to redeem work to see it as something good and beautiful and true 
and to avoid the traps of living to work or working to live. And as long as we are still challenged to be faithful images of God, we don't have to worry about this life being all there is or this work being all there is because, friends, there will be an infinite amount of time to enjoy your work in all its glory forever and ever. God is doing a new thing. And the good news is that in this moment, he's not leaving it all the way out to the end and going, surprise, he's using us to bring hints and echoes of his work of restoration into the world right now. When you go to work tomorrow, you are going to be mediators of God's goodness to creation and to show the world that there's something more than work and there's something more to come than just what we have now. We get to participate in this. I think this is so important that actually in our mission communities, we're going to spend the next, uh, I don't know, a couple of months really digging deep into this. There's only so much we can do today. Uh, so um, in your mission communities, make sure you do that. That will be so important because, as I said, it's most of our lives, we need to get this right. We need to understand this well. Let me pray. Gracious God, thank you that you have called us to work. That you've called work to be good. Father, help us now in our Monday to Friday or whatever hours that we work to be agents of redemption and restoration, pulling back the curse of work from frustration and futility to something that is good for the world, that brings flourishing and thriving and is good for us brings fulfillment, but not ultimate fulfillment, knowing that that can only be found in you, our great creator. May we worship you, Father, in our work every day. Amen. Hang over here.